Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest streaming and soon theatrical releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and we have five movies for you this week. The Woman in the Window, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, Together Together, and French Exit. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. And yes, usually I say the pandemic is too short for that mess, but things are reopening. Much to Rebecca's chagrin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just opening up masks, whatever. (laughs) Off they go. Out Ah. we go. (laughs) Uh, did you did you watch SNL last night? I did. The opening was <laughs> yes. exquisite. <laughs> the Fauci questionnaire is the questions like, "What the hell are you talking about? Is this some kind of trap?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, is this some kind of trap? Definitely a question. Definitely a question. Um, and the questions that introduces for our podcast uh, mainly revolve around how movies are being released because. Now that we're in that kind of in-between period um, between full quarantine pandy and things reopening, uh, it is a little bit tougher to find movies because no one really is quite sure what to do with their movies Mm. right now. Do they wait? Do they hold fire? Do they just do both? Um, So we took a few weeks off while we were kind of waiting for there to be enough movies for us to review. And we are back now. And in the weeks to come, as theaters really start to reopen, we'll see. We'll see how things how things go once once theatrical releases are a thing again. Uh, but in the meantime, one thing that did happen in between this episode and the last one was the Oscars. Yeah, and it's such a weird time. It's such a weird time. I, f- yeah. I feel like the moving of these events, which I I understand, also just like makes the pa- the past year and a half so confusing. Mm-hmm. When yeah. were the Oscars the last time? Usually the Oscars are sort of like late February. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so they were good, you know, two months after they usually happen. Um, And they were weird. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But they happened. And I feel like this is the the, uh, in all the years we've been doing this show, this is by far the least we've ever covered the Oscars because Mm. we didn't even talk about the nominations. We have done literally zero commentary on the Oscars. Um, And so... Now we'll just knock out all that commentary in one go. <laughs> Rebecca, <laughs> nominations. What did you think? Nominations. Um, I mean, I didn't. I didn't feel like there were any big surprises. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. Um, <laughs> but again, this is also one of those confusing moments where it's like some of the movies like didn't come out. Some of them felt like they came out five years ago. Like mm-hmm. the way time is confusing. I think made this like a little a little difficult. But um, I'm trying to think of any any big surprises. Um, was happy to see The Sound of Metal um, be nominated for Best Actor and Supporting Actor. Um, I mean, I guess the the Hillbilly Elegy <laughs> conversation was uh, the nomination for what Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Glenn Close. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. That also felt like a trap. <laughs> and it was. It was a trap for Glenn Close to get her to come to the Oscars and just do the butt. That was uh, it. Sometimes she traps are it. traps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a Bugs Bunny trap, and she went right into it. And <laughs> did, did, did they give her an Oscar in exchange? No, they did not. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? How about you? Uh, do you feel like there was anything uh, super surprising? Yeah, I would say the two biggest surprises were, um, A, the nomination in Best Supporting Actor uh, of Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black mm-hmm. Messiah. That was completely on no one's radar at all. Um, because he, of course, was the lead of that movie. <laughs> and and um, what are the rules of that again? Well, it, it really comes down to, uh, for the Oscars, people are people can vote in whichever category they want um, for actors. So, uh, so some folks may have been voting for him in lead, and apparently enough voted for him in supporting to get him in there. It's um, not something like a certain percentage of screen time or something, something. No, no, um, because that's why um, the the famous term category fraud has been such an issue over the years, uh, because there have been uh, winners in supporting over the years that are more or less leads of their films, or at least co-leads. Two that come to mind are Alicia Vikander for The Danish Girl, who is very much the co-lead of that film, but one in supporting, and even Jennifer Hudson for Dreamgirls. Uh, you know, that Effie is as much a, a co-lead of that film as any other character. So, uh, so no, there is there are no fail-safes in the Oscar rules to prevent uh, lead actors being run supporting and vice versa. And so, the, so the, just to explain it, the fraud would be that, like, the supporting or the lead actor category is, like, so stacked that you think you have a better chance of winning as a supporting yeah, generally speaking, um, if they're just like, is this a, a new enough star we could run them in supporting or is there you know, enough to the narrative that, you know, it's an ensemble and we can kind of argue that everyone is supporting. Uh, but, you know, Juice and the Black Messiah, I, I would dispute any categorization of that as an ensemble film. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Lakeith's character was very much the lead. Daniel Kaluuya's character was very much the main supporting role, and there we have it. But so that was a big shock. Uh, another big shock was that Thomas Vinterberg was nominated for Best Director for another round, mm. uh, be, because it is just still very, very rare for any foreign film to crack the main categories. Uh, so those things all happened. Uh, but then it turns out when it comes to surprises, uh, none of us could have seen coming the biggest surprise of all. Uh, at the very end of the ceremony when a very shrewd effort by Steven Soderbergh and the other producers to shake things up and end on a powerful note ended on the most deflating note imaginable. (laughs) Uh, Which, of course, was the Best Actor category and the award going uh, uh, not to Chadwick Boseman, uh, but to Anthony Hopkins, who was not there. So that was tough. Rebecca, what did you think of that? I mean, I felt bad for everyone involved in the production. I, I know the the production had kind of mixed reviews. I really liked it. I thought it was inspired and I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was um, beautiful. And I really liked the way that the presenters were able to add um, what felt like very like meaningful color to their commentary. Mm. And I, I I think it was just 
really bold and and it just I just felt so bad because it was clear what everyone thought would happen and how great that would have been and it was unfortunate. Yeah. And how do you feel about the award going to Anthony Hopkins over Riz Ahmed or Chadwick Boseman? I don't know. Hard to say. Um, I mean, it is a it was an incredible performance, but it felt like it was, you know, an uninspired win. Um, It felt, you know, similar to Mank being nominated (laughs) in every category, which is like, you know, the old guard still liking the old guards um, performances. Yeah. I don't know that I it should have been Chadwick Boseman. Mm, okay. Do you think it should have been Riz Ahmed? Maybe probably Riz Ahmed. Yeah. 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 How about you? Yeah, I definitely I definitely had him I had Riz as my backup if Chadwick wasn't going to get it. I was like, Oh, there's no way Anthony Hopkins would get it. He's a previous winner. Um, yes, of course, as we've talked about on this show, it is a staggering performance. And yes, is it the best performance of his career? Quite possibly. Um, was he deserving of an Oscar? Yeah, I'm not going to say he wasn't. Um, right. But this, as you know, everyone knew, was such a very competitive year in that category between the three of them. And it just really seemed that the Academy has been trending in the direction of rewarding uh, younger talent, more diverse talent. And, you know, coming off of um, Rami Malek's win for Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, you know, it, it just seemed that it was Riz Ahmed's moment. But... Uh, if it was not going to be Chadwick Boseman's moment, that is. And uh, but it seems like what we what we were kind of learning through a lot of this this year is, you know, the Oscar voters didn't necessarily love all the movies that came out this year. And a lot <laughs> of them, as has been kind of endlessly complained about, were massive bummers and they didn't want to watch them all. Uh, so, you know, and I think we also saw that in the fact that Frances McDormand won her third, uh, best actress mm. Oscar for Nomadland, because that means, because voters actually watched it. Voters mm. actually watched it. And so, you know, it was, it was viewed as that category was such a complete toss up across the board with everyone except for Vanessa Kirby posing a very real threat of winning. Um, and I, I, for one really thought it was Viola's to lose. Um, mm. Because the Academy loves when actors play figures from like mm. showbiz past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Academy also wants to, of course, virtue signal that, you know, Oscar so white is a thing of the past and they fixed the job. Um, but uh, it turned out that the fact that that movie did not get a Best Picture nomination should have been a real sign to uh, to, to, to pundits trying to figure out the winners because it lost both Best Actor and Best Actress. Um, and, you know, and it did not get a Best Picture nomination. And that, that was a hint. That was the Academy dropping a hint. They actually did not really care about that movie that much. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was interesting all around. I was floored that Frances won, not that she didn't deserve it, but because she had done literally no campaigning for even a second. Um, and I believe when she won just a few years ago for Three Billboards, she said in her speech, don't give me any more of these. I don't want them. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> then I go say like I, I listen to a woman now. <laughs> and I, I was really thinking that she might actually, if she won, go up there and just be like, I don't want this. I'm going to give it to someone else. Like, Carrie, you want it? Come get it. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, but she was, you know, more gracious, uh, but still, of course, very on brand. Uh, Speaking of Saturday and- Night Live, uh, <laughs> Kate McKinnon's Frances McDormand recently uh, was stellar. Yes. Chef's kiss. Very, very good. 
Um, but those were pretty much the two surprises, uh, lead actress and uh, and lead actor. Aside from that, it went exactly as expected, more or less across the board. Exciting to see Emerald Fennell get her yes. uh, screenplay Oscar for Promising Young Woman, which apparently they watch enough to give it that honor, uh, but not enough to uh, reward Carrie Mulligan and lead actress. Uh, yeah, it was. But, you know, this is going to be remembered as such a strange, strange Oscars. Um you know, and, and the next year's one might be as well, depending on how the film calendar resumes um, as the summer progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a lot of the films that were nominated this year are films that in other years, generally speaking, might not have made it just because there was such an absence mm-hmm. of the usual awards season heavy hitters from the studios. Um, you know, which is why, you know, Netflix had, you know, like 75 nominations um, <laughs> because they were the only, uh, you know, provider putting movies out regularly throughout the pandemic. So. Uh, so, yeah, it's it, and although ultimately they still lost a vast majority of them. So, haha, But <laughs> all the same. Yeah. Strange times. Strange. What did you times. think of the um, of the production of the ceremony? You know, I thought it was interesting. I love the intro with Regina King walking mm. in. I thought that was fantastic. I could have watched that for like three hours, just her striding confidently in a gown holding an Oscar. <laughs> um, my biggest issue was that they removed the clips from the acting categories because that is always that's like my I, I speak in that language. Like it's, it's, you know, like you when you're watching the movies, you're just like, oh, that's the Oscar clip. That's it. That's it. That's what they're going to show. Um, and it's always so gratifying to like, you know, watch all those, the actors at the top of their game, just emoting their asses off. And then, you know, the, everyone in the audience being like, oh, that's good. You know, like it's, it's, and yeah, I always, I thrive on it. So I was very, very, <laughs> very much blue balled by the fact that they did not use acting clips this year that graded, you know, I also am very perplexed by them removing the songs from the main ceremony. Um, because mm. the songs help break up the monotony of the rest of the show of just talking, 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 talking. Um, so those two choices I am against, and I hope they don't repeat. Um, but I am very much in favor of the fact that they did not do any pointless theme montages. So mm. uh, that was a big thumbs up for me. And I love that even though they cut clips and they cut songs, it still ran about a half hour over. So. <laughs> Did you get to see the um, performance of the song from Eurovision? No, I didn't watch any of those performances, um, but I hear it was wonderful. It was wonderful. You should watch it. It was really (laughs) wonderful. Um, That was another surprise category. Uh, That was that was very much expected to go to Leslie Odom Jr. for the One Night on Miami song. But that's one of the movies where it became clear that the voters just didn't watch it. And we knew they watched Juice and the Black Messiah because it won another award. Uh, How is that that even allowed? I'm just like, man, I watch so many fucking shitty movies for this dumb (laughs) podcast that nobody (laughs) listens to. And these assholes can't watch 20 movies to do their job. Ridiculous. I had to watch fucking The Woman in the Window and you can't watch... One night in Miami, get the fuck out of here. I know, I know, I know. Um, I mean, it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) By what you mean, woman in the window, not one night in Miami. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I mean, as a member of of one or two voting bodies, uh, I I, I do know the struggle of when the screeners start to pile up and you're just like, I don't want to watch any of those. Uh, but yes, uh, it is, it is, it, that's part of the old guard issue with the Academy, you know, is you have a lot of, uh, 
older members that are, uh, you know, have very set tastes and are not interested in something new uh, and maybe are not as interested in the, you know, call for greater inclusion and diversity. And so they're just like, nope, <laughs> I'm going to watch the movie about the white lady in the desert. And that's the only one I'm going to watch. Whole so. system needs to be changed. <laughs> Mandatory that you watch at least, I don't know, a certain a certain number. I don't know. I know. It's tough. It's tough. But uh, but it's in the books now. And we can move forward and never never speak of any of those movies again, uh, which is always my, my, my attitude. <laughs> The second the Oscars are over, I'm like, let us never speak of a single one of these films again, uh, because we've had to talk about them over and over and over again for the last six months. I, I just want to say one last thing I enjoyed about the production was, and maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I like the fact that they had extended um, time for their speeches. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say that I enjoyed that, if only because, you know, watching people get played off is always so, so soul crushing. Terrible. Uh, so I, I do agree with you on that. I, I, I think that that's great. I think they should do that going forward, um, you know, within limits. If someone hits like, you know, sure. five, five minutes, then it's like, OK, then like tr- just just shoot them. Uh, like that's, that's no, <laughs> you know, if, if they are if they are if just a tranquilizer dart. But, you know, just like something to just like put them out because we can't have if they talk for five minutes and they don't realize that they're still talking, then there needs to be an intervention. But less orchestration, more snipers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's I mean, it, less so from, you know, lead actor or lead actress. But I, I really enjoyed seeing, you know, best costume or best editing, you know, get that time. You work your whole life for this and right. and they don't get to, like, read their full list or say whatever is important to them. I, I really like that they had the time to talk. I feel like for the most yeah. part, they everyone like really took good advantage of that time as well. Yeah, and it also gave us moments like Thomas Vinterberg's very, very heartbreaking um, dedication mm. to his deceased daughter uh, for for a feature film for another round. Um, because I mean, I'll admit that when he got to that part of the speech at first, when you feel him gearing up for a whole new section of the speech, which had already been running long, I was like, "Oh my God, wrap it up!" Um, and then, of course, I immediately felt like a terrible person uh, when he got into uh, the part of his speech about his daughter. Um, but those are the moments that we wouldn't have in a normal year because after 30 seconds, he'd be played off the stage and that would be that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, fully aligned with you that they should not, uh, end speeches prematurely and they should let them speak. Like this is in nominally with the whole awards are literally for these people to win awards. Right. So let them have their moment for God's sake. I'm glad we agree. Shall we now to the movies? Onward to all, all of which are surefire Oscar winners next year. Ha. Oh, God. Uh, the first movie is The Woman in the Window. Agoraphobic doctor Anna Fox witnesses something she shouldn't have while keeping tabs on the Russell family, the seemingly picture-perfect clan that lives across the way. Jason. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I could start, and it would be something just like, ah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's go a place to start as any. Uh, and for what's worth, I feel like the people who made the film would share that noise with you because of the path this movie has been on um, that has led to what it currently is. You know, this was uh, a major, major literary uh, rights purchase whenever Fox bought the rights to this book. Uh, it's based on a book by an author who is apparently notoriously a sort of um, pathological lying raconteur of some sort. So this is just what Amy Adams does now. She makes Netflix movies based on books by nightmare men. Um, 
but uh, but you know, very much cat, you know, cashing in on that moment after Girl on the Train and Gone Girl were were books where it was just like, oh, let's just make a bunch of movies about sort of unreliable female narrators that are suspense thrillers. Um, you know, the movie is is far more far more Girl on the Train uh, than anything else, right down to the involuntary laughter uh, of <laughs> of Let's Never Forget Emily Blunt high stepping it through the mud. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget. Never forget. Uh, and then, you know, putting together tr- the pedigree for this movie is off the fucking charts mm-hmm. directed by Joe Wright, uh, you know, who directed all those prestige Keira Knightley movies like Pride and Prejudice and Atonement. The adaptation is by Tracy Letts, one of the greatest screen, uh, one of the greatest playwrights of our time, who incidentally also does the voice of mm-hmm. the cat in French Exit. Original therapist in this movie, right? He does. He mm-hmm. does. Uh, original score by Danny Elfman doing very, let's call it noticeable work. Um, and then, of course, the cast, Amy Adams, Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, Jennifer Jason Lee, Brian Tyree Henry, Wyatt Russell. Um, you know, this was clearly intended to be a major, major movie, but then it did not test well. And Fox gradually cut it down to barely over 90 minutes. Um, and then they realized it was a turkey, so they gave it to Netflix. And now, <laughs> and now this 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 utterly incoherent mess of a movie um, is is in this is in its regrettable, tragic final form, uh, streaming with a little fanfare on Netflix, buried uh, in the in the pile of other things they're streaming on Netflix. So it's a sad story um, of a very silly movie. And uh, and from there, I will turn it over to you. So this movie is, I mean, it's hilarious. And I think that <laughs> I think that you should go into it um, getting ready to play a game, maybe like a, you know, a drinking game of every time she drops something, um, <laughs> you could take a shot. Um, there's so many silly, mo- so silly moments that that don't make any sense that. uh I, you know, you kind of go from being angry at it for wasting your time and for thinking that, like, you're an idiot. But then I think if you just kind of sit back and enjoy it, um, you know, find a, a friend to watch it with, it, it could be enjoyable. It's so ridiculous. I think the moment I think I, you know, kind of from the beginning of like, OK, she's an agoraphobic, but but also she's an alcoholic and a and a pill abuser. And so, you know, it's very clearly painted that we're not supposed to believe her. Um, it's really played, you know, to the back of the house. Um, <laughs> the moment that it made the turn where I was like, okay, never mind. I'm going to stop being angry at the like wild inconsistencies of this character where she's an agoraphobic and, but like freely lets this like clearly deranged teenage boy into her house and <laughs> it has like the biggest heart to heart of all time. The second time she lets a stranger into her house the next day, um, the moment that I uh, sent you a photo of Jason <laughs> is mm-hmm. where uh, Julianne Moore comes over. Who's supposed to be the, the boy's mother from across the street. And um, she draws a sketch of, of Amy Adams character in eight seconds if that it like had this very like strangers with candy <laughs> or like I could imagine like Paul Rudd like in Wet Hot American Summer just being like do, 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 and then like throwing and then it's like this full painting. I, right. He's like mid your drawing. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can imagine Jerry Blank being like, nice colors. <laughs> uh, it was so ridiculous and silly that I was like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe I didn't understand that this is supposed to be some kind of comedy. <laughs> well, and therein lies the conflict in the movie as it, as it now stands, uh, is that the final product is just a very campy, overwrought, melodramatic thriller. Um, and no one involved in the movie seems to be aware that that's the movie that they're making. Um, everyone's being pretty serious <laughs> throughout, especially <laughs> Amy Adams, not even a hint of humor in the performance. Um, it's just another bizarre, dark, self-flagellating performance from her after Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know what she's going through. I hope she gets well soon. I, um, I think I don't like her. Yeah, you've turned on her. I think, yeah, I think I've turned. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, I, I do, I do have a, you know, a hard time. I, I, I feel like she can still bring me back. You know, I think back to as recently as Arrival. You know, and I'm still just like, oh, she's so good. Um, and even Nocturnal Animals that same year, um, which I know divided people, but I adored. Um, but that, that was kind of one of the first bellwethers. I think that and American Hustle were like the two first bellwethers that she wanted. That she's been like telling her team that she wants to start getting dark. Um, and she wants to show people that there's more sides to her than Enchanted. Um, but so, there, but I don't think there are. <laughs> I mean, she she really commits, but it's not. She's still just so inherently sweet seeming that you don't really quite buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's yeah, it, it's not quite landing. Whereas something like Arrival is like the perfect mix of something where you know it does kind of. It's, it has a lot of dramatic weight to it, but it also is, you know, about sort of like the the lightness of her character and her passion and her interests and her abilities, you know, um, as opposed to her just being like a falling down wreck, which she's not quite as legal in. I will say, and I don't know if she had more scenes in the original cut of the film, but Julianne Moore has just one scene in this whole movie. And, and she... <laughs> She definitely acts the scene like someone who knows that that's their only scene and they need to make a big impression. Because <laughs> she acts the hell out of her one single scene. <laughs> I did see what I did read one review that said something like she's using like way too close to her 30 rock voice. Yes, I saw that too. <laughs> I saw that too. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I also saw, I, which I, I was not reminded. I didn't think she was doing a Boston accent. Um, <laughs> But uh, which, you know, which which Tina Fey did later find a way to apologize for on the show whenever whenever they did like the show within the show. And they had Cynthia Nixon playing the Julianne Moore character. <laughs> and she was like, am I going too big with this accent, Liz? <laughs> and Liz is like, that's what people from Boston sound like to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's one point where she, like, she the, the scene between her and Amy Adams um She's like sometimes she's part of it. She's in the kitchen and Amy Adams is in the living room and there's like, yeah. like, you know, like line of sight through the kitchen. And she like does this thing where she's like going to like walk out the door, but then turns around. And it, right. it was like, is this going to turn into a musical dance? number? <laughs> what is happening here? This right. is oh, wait, crazy. The part where she's like, why do you say that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's... it was a very theatrical performance. Um, and at least, I mean, she seems like she's having fun in the performance, which is like the only actor in the whole movie you can say that about really. Um, so at least she seems like she's having fun, uh, in this very, what ultimately turned out to be a very campy movie. I also love that they made her blonde as if to have two (laughs) redheaded actresses together would be like snood or something. And they would just like cancel each other out. Um, they're like, no one's going to watch a movie with two redheads. It's impossible. Um, so, so instead she is, is wearing a, a, a very, very funny blonde wig. 
Um, so also funny that she is uh, she and Jennifer Jason Lee uh, play somewhat the same character because in a, a, a forthcoming series, Lisey's story, they play sisters. Uh, mm-hmm. So after many decades of uh, in the same industry, now they are suddenly freely being cast as either the same person or relatives. And I, for <laughs> one, want to be in that family, um, um, even though Jennifer Jason Lee gets literally maybe five words the entire movie. I'm really having a hard time. I really have a hard time with movies that are neither fantasy nor reality. And, and if they're neither, it's because they're not well thought out. You know, (laughs) I I feel like this movie has that where things don't make sense. And, and right. You're, they're supposed to understand that you have this unreliable narrator, but there's this whole part where she tries to call the police she picks up a landline and then she gets a busy signal. So then she looks for her cell phone as though that would make a difference <laughs> about whether or not the line is busy. And then she, then the phone is like in the middle of under her bed. And it's like this scene out of fucking saw that with this tension that she can't reach her phone. Like, how is that like the, the, like this huge moment. Um, and then people just show up into her house Oh yeah, Gary Oldman is like never not there. Like he's I feel just like over every other shot is just like Gary Oldman suddenly looming in a frame. Just like this woman's out of her mind. <laughs> uh, How would that even happen? Like, would the police come to their house and then tell them, and then they, they, then then he would follow them over to her house, or the yeah, police showed unclear. up at her house? Unclear. Brian Tyree Henry, as the as the detective, constantly has an expression on his face, like I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> uh, so. Then there's another detective who's just me. Who's just mean. Who's just mean. <laughs> Her and whole I, thing is that she just like nigs at Amy Adams every single screen they have together. That, so if you, that could be hilarious if you weren't expecting the movie to be not a comedy. Um, <laughs> and I understand, like, I really thought the part where they describe um, the certain like tragedy that happened in the past was, mm-hmm. uh, it was very Anna Karenina. Um, uh, <laughs> which, which Joe Wright also directed. Yes, um, and 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 beautiful, and and that's you know that's a very artistic way to you know show this um, transition into this memory. Again, not everything has to be super realistic, but it's like if you're gonna kind of make it a little bit where I'm supposed to be following a murder, don't mm. have people just walk into someone's house routinely. <laughs> right. How also, even? I I feel like this is, and I think that same review also alluded called this you know the the least surprising tw- reveal in in film history. Right. Um, but um, but I had the the quote unquote reveal regarding her past pegged literally in the opening credits um, because the <laughs> opening credits we see like swirling snow and we hear like a disembodied oh. voice and we're and I'm just like oh okay <laughs> um, and uh, so the fact that we still had the 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 nerve to present that as a reveal in the final act was was something. Um, I will say that I didn't know who the killer was going to be. Um, I was texting with Beth Dean about it and she has read the book and she's like, well, yes, I knew it was going to be because I have seen a movie before. Um, um, but, uh, did you, the first time you see this character, you understand that they have the potential to be a murderer. And see, this is maybe where I'm too much of an Amy Adams because I was just kind of like I was feeling the narrative that she was feeling toward this character, and I was like, oh. Um, so yes, I, I I somehow was 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 taken in by it. Um, so, but uh, I but, like but good the on you. <laughs> accidental reunion of um, 
uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier cast. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think about that. Anthony also, yeah, Mackie Anthony, Anthony Mackie is literally billed fourth in this movie. <laughs> in the end credits, his name comes up fourth. <laughs> and he is on screen for 15 seconds. <laughs> and then you have Wyatt Russell, who plays her downstairs neighbor, who she really... <laughs> that's another hilarious point in this movie, where he and her have a kind of understanding... And the moment she gets the ability, she just like rats him the fuck out. In the <laughs> she yard. really does. The way she says it too, it's hysterical. It's so good. It is the the most Karen like thing of right. all time. <laughs> and he's looking at her like that too. He's like yeah. really narc. <laughs> like it just occurred to me who would have been a really funny choice to play her character. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Yes, not just, being like, no, no, I saw, no, listen, no, I, I know it's just the pills, but no, I saw something. <laughs> it's out the window. What? What's going on? Who are you? Where'd you come from? There's all these like weird interactions with technology, um, like the way it transitions when she like takes a photo. I don't know. It's very. Um, <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing says drunk quite like being like, no, look, the reflection of the wine glass vindicates me. <laughs> <laughs> She drops everything. Uh, I don't know. I I I do think it's worth watching if you're going to be a little buzzed and and looking for a laugh. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's not it's not a it's not a bad time. It's a good time. Um, oh, when she like staring, she's like all drunk and like she like makes this like quick look at the clock and she looks like a cat like on her back and then she like drinks from the water fountain. <laughs> It's so campy. It is. It really is. Um, it is just, you know, and I guess it, it is camp in the in the sort of the more uh, uh, traditional canonical sense of the word, because for something to truly succeed as camp, according to Susan Sontag's uh, essay where she introduced camp, it has to be basically it's it's meant to be misfired seriousness. Mm-hmm. You know, so if something tries to be campy, by that definition, it cannot be. Right. So camp only happens when something tries to be very straight-faced and serious and then completely fails. So in that definition, Woman in the Window is 100% camp. Hell yeah. Uh, because it is very much trying to be serious, um, especially Amy Adams. So, um, so yeah, I know it's a tough one to rate because it is it is a complete failure of a movie. Um, <laughs> but but it is but it has many it has many joys that come with watching it. I, so I, I do wish this was a movie I wish that we would watch together. <laughs> yeah, so can you imagine? I wish that we had watched like the screener in your home and oh, could have God. just like had I mean, some wine and had so much fun with. I mean, can you imagine if we had gone to a press screening of this back in the day? No. <laughs> just, <laughs> just sitting there howling the whole time. <laughs> Pinching each other, trying not to right. laugh out loud. Oh, my God. Oh, what a, what well, a dream. Well, binge it, I guess. Binge it with <laughs> someone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, it just goes straight down the middle. So I'm just like, consume, <laughs> um, since it's both a binge and a send it back. So mathematically to me, that makes it a, a, a consume. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed. I feel like I was I was hoping that there would be more hilarious tweets about this. There were a few. Mm. Um, and it was it's a kind of movie that I immediately I don't I try not to read reviews about movies um, because I don't want them to color what I'm going to say. Yeah. 
But yeah. I, it, it felt like cats where I'm like, I want to, I want a community right now of people who also thought this was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> Twitter was a little disappointing, but, um, articles were good. So, um, I think yeah. if you're going to watch it and you can't watch it with somebody, then you should watch it now. So you can catch the tweets about it at least. In yeah. the article. I would also recommend, are you on Letterboxd? No. So Letterboxd is basically, it's like Goodreads, but for movies. And it's an app. And I, I got on it recently and I don't know why it took me so long, but I'm finally on it. And it's like a great place just to find a lot of like hilarious, snarky, user generated movie reviews. Um, okay. and, it's, it's, and it's and it's used only by like big film fans. It's not like fucking, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, user ratings, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, and, and there's and really, like, it's for everybody, but not idiots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It hasn't been co-opted by like, you know, uh, fucking Proud Boys trying to tank the Ghostbusters reboot or whatever. Uh, you know, not, yeah, now that I said it, but, uh, but yes. So plus one to Letterboxd and plus one to a woman in the window. Um, and is streaming on Netflix and rated R movie. Number two, those who wish me dead still reeling from the loss of three lives. Hannah is a smoke jumper. Who's perched in a watchtower high above the Montana wilderness. She soon encounters Connor, a skittish boy who's bloody traumatized and on the run in the remote forest. As Hannah tries to bring him to safety, she's unaware of the real dangers to follow. Two relentless killers hunting Connor and a fiery blaze consuming everything in its path. So both of these movies believe that the way to get through trauma is more trauma. Are you an agoraphobic? How about a home invasion? Are you suffering PTSD because you watch people die in a fire? How about taking people into a fire? (laughs) Listen, it's called facing your fears, okay? You say, like, it's like people shouldn't get struck by lightning twice, but these <laughs> these ladies... <laughs> oh, she actually gets struck by lightning in this movie. Yeah, she does! <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure which part was funnier between that scene and, like, the six-months-pregnant lady riding on horseback. Uh... <laughs> the director and writer has never picked up a medical book or <laughs> no basic understanding of the human body. <laughs> I mean, to see Angelie Jolie get struck by lightning in the middle of the field. <laughs> was, was, and she almost drowned in, in a, she almost literally drowned in a fire. <laughs> very nearly drowned during a fire. Um, it is, it is, it is something special. And just, I didn't really understand. I know we're kind of jumping in, but like the scene where she gets struck by lightning is a scene where she and this boy are just like running. They're kind of doing this weird kind of like, you know, almost like leapfrog run and pass um, tag team jaunt across a field in, in this field is apparently the most cursed field on earth because there's just like, as the way that you would normally watch in a war movie with like bombs going off everywhere, it's that except for it's the lightning shooting down from the sky. But like multiple times in this field, I'm like, what is this field? Is this a thing that lightning does someplace? It's like this Wonder Woman insane. running across no man's land. <laughs> <laughs> it's a barrage of lightning. Yeah, I mean, and they're they're just they're they're trying to like serpentine, and <laughs> and they just like see her just like doop doop boop boop, and just like oh, and then she gets struck by lightning and just crumbles to the ground. And she's just like, and then the kid like is like trying to like have a big emotional moment. She has this look on her face like, not now, kid. I got struck by lightning. Um, it is, it is, it is something. Um, but uh, but you know, it was it was it was gripping in its way. Um, this is uh, the movie that is directed and co-written by Taylor Sheridan, 
who wrote Hell or High Water um, and who wrote and directed Wind River. Um, so generally a, a fairly celebrated um, sort of budding filmmaker. And it is, this is Angelina Jolie's first starring role in a non-kids film in over 10 years. Wow. Yeah, it's been, and the last one that she did was that movie By the Sea <laughs> that she oh. made made with Brad. Uh, so when when she was still going as Angelina Jolie Pitt. that was like a commercial. No, that was a film. Huh. Uh, so yeah, so we, she really fully after that, after, you know, after the end of that decade and after 2010, she just like stopped making, uh, films really in a lot of ways. So she did a lot of voiceover work in a lot of kids films. And then of course she made the two Maleficent films, which are semi-animated. Um, and, uh, and this is it. This is the return of Angelina Jolie to, to lead roles in adult film. And I, for one, welcome her return. Um, I made a lot of noises in the first act of this movie every time that there was a close-up of her face. Noises along the lines of like, oh, there she is. And, oh, my God, there's no one like her. And no one else can touch you! And, you know, I was was having, I was really on a journey um, watching her in this film. Um, I mean, she has the best face. She just has the best face. And she looks... (laughs) Unbelievable, even as even even after being struck by lightning and and repeatedly pummeled and nearly drowned um, and covered in soot um, and wearing very unflattering pants on top of everything else. Uh, she, I think she brought her own <laughs> outfit from Lara Croft movies. Um, <laughs> the, her face that, was that, actually. I was going to say, well, that one was slightly more fitted, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Her face was like the first kind of topic of conversation about this movie as we watched it in our house. And then after she kind of has this showdown with Nicholas Holt, um, another um, another face. Um, yes. I decided this movie should actually be called Two Tens Meet in a Forest because <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> her face is what Sol mentioned. Um, it's too much to be just another person amongst all these people. Uh-huh. She, you know, was like, it would be so weird if like one of your coworkers was Angelina, Angelina Jolie, but then everyone else was just normal. There's like one guy who's like kind of buff and, and handsome, but then everyone oh, yeah. else is just like nobody to write home about. And like, yeah. how strange is it that, that you have this coworker that has that face? <laughs> no, it's very true. And I know it's what, what you're talking about. There's like, you know, this movie is a strange kind of haphazard slapdash mashup of like maybe two, possibly up to three different movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and one of them is, uh, you know, is is similar to whatever that firefighting movie in the, in the in the forest was that we reviewed a few years ago. I think maybe Peter Berg directed it. Um, it was, you know, a, a, you know, a story about just like the sort of like the brotherhood of all these different, you know, smoke jumpers um that you know are sent in whenever there's like a giant forest fire to try to contain it and it was like a tragic true story where you know a lot of them died and while while in the line of duty um so the beginning of this movie feels at least in her storyline feels like that except for to your point it's just a bunch of like sort of just like you know just like blue collar guys sitting around in their scruffy beards and they're like scruffy work duds and then also angelina jolie is sitting there with that face um and her sort of like you know like blunt cut bangs uh, <laughs> and just like trying to be just like, oh, I'm one of the guys. 
um, and is like heckling the service, just like, oh, don't mind us. Ha 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 ha. And like, and, 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 and Oscars for everyone else in the scene for being able to carry on like it was normal because mm. like, like, you know, I having been, uh, you know, in a room with her at TIFF a few years ago, you know, like it, you, you, you truly don't notice anyone else in the room. <laughs> like it was it was a very crowded, very full, very intense room of Angelina fans when she was doing like a and a and like and you you there's everyone else vanishes uh so it is it now actually follows the fact that it's her first adult role in in over 10 years this is actually the first time we've been able to review a movie of hers on the show um so uh so it's it's, so now we have to get all our angelina stuff out um but uh but yeah this was i mean all that aside to me this was a welcome return to form for her um Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I had a friend was messaging me last night being just like, oh, like, what a strange, like, well, how would you, if you could make, if you're Angelina Jolie and you can make any movie in the world, why do you make this one? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, I feel like it's, it's really like the perfect intersection of where she is at this point in her life. Because, I mean, for, for of course, for the majority of, of the aughts, um, she became known as sort of this unexpected action movie queen. Um, after spending the 90s endearing our generation to her, specifically our queer generation to her, uh, in films like Gia and Voxfire and uh, Girl Interrupted. Uh, then she was like, JK, I'm just going to make action movies. And then she made many, many, many of them. And uh, and then she spent a decade making children's stuff because she was raising young children. And now we've had a movie where she gets to marry those two interests. We have an action thriller, and we have a story about protecting the life of a child and quite possibly adopting that child at the end. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. uh, so, so I feel like it, in that way, it could not make more sense uh, that this is the film where she where she returns uh, to acting. I could feel her asking for more scenes where she gets to cry uh, because <laughs> uh, she wanted to sort of flex her acting muscles again. Um, you know, so there's like a good five or six scenes in a row in the beginning of the movie where she just sits by herself and cries to camera and beautiful close up with that face. It's funny um, because um, just about those scenes, like they, so she had recently um, been, it seemed like recently been involved in one of these firefighting expeditions that had gone wrong. And she was very clearly suffering from PTSD and that's why she's sort of like relegated to being on the watchtower instead of being, you know, ready on the front lines for the next fire. And all of her coworkers are like, Oh yeah, they gave you that psych eval too soon. Like, you know, it was, it's a bum rap that you got stuck in the tower, but clearly she is very traumatized and should not even be in the watchtower, let alone on the front lines. She can't make it two minutes without crying. Like she's very upset and constantly haunted by these memories. It does not seem like a bad idea that she is off the front lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would concur. Um, and she also seems like quite an oops a daisy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> real, real klutz, this Hannah. Uh, <laughs> like I first of all. This movie is definitely in the pocket of like big hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> she just takes out like gallons of it and is pouring it over all of the parts of her body that are like, damaged throughout this movie. <laughs> like, like there's a scene where like I like literally blinked and like looked away for one second and looked back and she had like fallen the entire length of the tower onto the ground onto her back. <laughs> Which, yes, which leads to her first, uh, like, full-body perox- right. <laughs> hydrogen peroxide bath. 
trying to clean out her hands. So it's just a lot of like pouring and like, yeah, <sighs> famous yeah. Peter Griffin, like, <laughs> then her feet somehow, I guess it, it oh, took me yeah, a minute guess, to be like, I guess that's from the lightning. Yeah. I think, yeah. When you get struck by lightning, I guess it yeah, burns the bottom of your feet. Yeah. She, she really takes a licking, uh, uh, in this, in this movie. Um, but she, but she, but she persists. So that's movie and, number uh, one. Yeah. So that's movie number one. Movie number two is someone else having a real bad, horrible day. Having a tough time. Connor, little little baby Connor's having a time. Yes. The second movie, well, I guess it's the first movie chronologically, is Mm -hmm. the story Mm -hmm. of um, a group of unclear who they're associated with, but like hitman for hire who are going around and killing um, like the people involved in a big corruption case. Um, and one of the people involved is this little boy, Connor's father. Um, and so he sort of kind of gets word that, that the, that the district attorney in this case has been murdered and he and Connor kind of go on the run. Right. Right. Yes. And <clears throat> uh, one of the hitmen in question is, is the 10 previously mentioned Nicholas Holt. Uh, the other is the six Aiden Gillen. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, and and they are doing this at the behest of Tyler Perry. Turns mm-hmm. out, um, in a single scene performance, I thought it was um, kind of funny that uh, they the hitmen keep bemoaning how cheap he is. Yes, um, and it, it be, since Tyler Perry famously is like will not let his employees unionize. So <laughs> I, was I said like, that oh. was such a great part of the movie where they're talking about like this should have been two teams like. <laughs> Even hitmen are like, man, I can't have work-life balance unless you have enough people on this hitman job. Exactly, exactly. Like, if they were just, you know, how are the two of us supposed to hold us down? See if there was a second team here. Yeah, uh, it is It is. It is amusing. Um, and it is an awkward balance because, you know, they, the movie definitely goes out of its way to show us their heartlessness. Um, and uh, although they're also kind of like, I guess, like griping each other, like, oh, man, I had to shoot that lady for nothing. And um, and just the fact that they also are being told to kill the kid is mm. is, is 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 intense. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like usually in movies like this, they're just like, oh, yeah, sure. Just like, you know, you need to kill the dad. The kid doesn't know anything um, because truly the kid doesn't know anything. Um, you know, like it's, it's like the dad was an accountant for, you know, who uncovered this stuff that I guess made Tyler Perry's character put him in legal jeopardy. And so he's trying to, you know, clean house and get rid of everyone who knows about the stuff. The kid doesn't know. The, so the kid doesn't like, know. Well, the kid like sees their faces, and I guess, well, yeah. And then the dad gives him the note. The dad mm-hmm. goes and signs the kid's death warrant. Uh, <laughs> 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 it gives him the note where like, everything's explained, I guess. Although we never see the note, we we watch Angelina, you know, read it right before falling off the tower again or whatever. But, um, I, but I really enjoyed this movie, the yeah. Hitman movie. I liked that. It, this felt like really buttoned up. They were true professionals. Um, they weren't bumbling at all. They weren't, uh, there was very clearly business. They were very efficient. Um, I like the fact that, yes, like Tyler Perry is the person who is giving them their orders, but it's still unclear who is behind him even. Um, mm. Because the father makes it sound like it's something, you know, much bigger, this this case that they're, they're investigating. Um, but they just like, have it down and then at one point they kind of like you know get a little um uh uh, affected by the the what they've been through um 
at one point one of the characters kind of catches on fire and and admits mm-hmm. that he's like fading, which I feel like is something you don't often see from like the bad guy hitman characters mm-hmm. that they're admitting that like they can't do this much longer. Um, I don't know. I loved that part of this this movie. Yeah, I I, I you're like you're like the part that I liked was the killing. Uh, <laughs> I like this like, like workplace you know, drama well. of these two hitmen. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It felt very relatable. Yeah, yeah. You're like I like their work ethic. I like their humanity. Yes. Um, yeah. No. No. I mean, I, I I agree. It was sort of an unexpected source of character development because yeah, frequently in these movies, those characters are not particularly developed. Um, and you know, not that we get any backstory on these guys at all. Um, but in terms of how they respond to things, you know, there is a bit more nuance than just like the usual sort of like just like straight faced, um, you know, gun shooting men. Um, you know, like we see them have to kind of respond in real time as like the stakes keep changing. And they explain and, um, the decisions that they make, um, mm-hmm. you know, the things that could have led to maybe plot holes. They explained like that they only they have limitations. There's only one team. They can't go after right. everybody. They need to like prioritize. Um, they just seemed really good at their jobs. And I admire that. <laughs> they did. They did. And they were still, you know, and they were still very chilling uh, going mm-hmm. about going about their business. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I would concur. Uh, you know, the whole, it, you know, as a whole, the movie never to me quite overcomes the, the, the sort of kitchen sink feel that it has of just like taking all these disparate elements and like kind of chugging them together into a blender and, you know, and just kind of sitting back and like just letting whatever weird smoothie is made just be the movie. Um, so, you know, it was still a very uneven in that regard for me, but. But, you know, I was certainly always engaged. Uh, I did have to wonder how small this forest was um, (laughs) (laughs) up to a certain point, because it sure seemed easy to find people in it. Um, And uh, all roads seemed to lead back to the fire. But um, but yeah, it was yeah, it was it was, you know, this was this was a very to me, a very sort of perhaps above average but not great action thriller. Um, and yeah, well cast, generally well written in terms of the character developing choices and the different relationships the characters have. And you know, John Bernthal plays a cop who's Angelina's ex-boyfriend. And no, then, it's the third it, movie. Yes, there's a whole third movie there. Um, yes, the third movie also involving his pregnant wife, uh, aforementioned horseback rider, um, who uh, is is incredible in this movie. Um, even despite the horseback riding, not her fault. That's a script. Um, has probably the the kind of the tensest overall scene in the whole movie is a scene between her and and the hit and the hitman. Mm-hmm. Are they like this kind of the survivalist couple? Um, who, yeah, it ends up being relevant in this particular scenario. <laughs> their ability to respond to unexpected um, attackers. It does. It does. So uh, so yeah. All in all, I would I, I would say this is. Uh, probably probably still just to consume um maybe i got an inch toward a consume plus but you know mainly i you know i'm just so excited to see angelina jolie again and also to see her say fuck again it's been a long time since they've gotten <laughs> to see angelina jolie say fuck and you know having been weaned on foxfire and gia and girl interrupted i need that uh so i'm i'm very grateful to have her back once again providing that for us um i i'm not would you, i'm not a fan of hers in, in particular um your team aniston Team Aniston? Yes. In the Brad not, stuff. No, I'm um no, I'm, Team I'm Winona Ryder. <laughs> oh, oh, you're still there's... upset that she stole the movie away from her? 
Well, I mean, I think that there's that, that's the dichotomy. Like you're on one of those teams in life. You're either team Angelina Julie or team Winona Ryder, and I'm team Winona Ryder. <laughs> you're team refrigerator. <laughs> Zero degrees, baby. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I would say this is an above action, above average action movie that you would stumble upon on HBO, um, consume. All right. And it is on HBO and it is rated R. Movie number three, the Mitchells versus the machines. Young Katie embarks on a road trip with her proud parents, younger brother and beloved dog to start her first year at film school. But their plans to bond as a family soon get interrupted when the world's electronic devices come to life to stage an uprising. With help from two friendly robots, the Mitchells must now come together to save one another and the planet from the new technological revolution. Sony animated film, definitely in a style that I haven't seen before. And mm. when I first saw the sort of like, what would it we call like a frenetic, um, uh, non-traditional style, I was... A little prepared to be not not a fan. I was like, oh, no, this is going to be like a little too wacky. But man, did my mind change. Oof. What a treat. What, what a, a treat. Delight. What a create. This feels like, I mean, visually, it feels like um, Spider-Man. Welcome to the Spider-Verse. Into mm. the Spider-Verse? Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. In a way that is fresh and exciting and dynamic and hilarious and the storytelling also um you know it balances that much like spider-man in in being very sincere and um and moving Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i would say that more so than possibly any other movie that has sort of been dumped to streamers during the whole pandemic i feel the most bad for this um, mm. because this is a masterpiece, I think. This is an animated comedy masterpiece that should have been seen in theaters. You know, mm. it should have been a major theatrical release from Sony. How they wound up just giving it to Netflix is lost on me. Mm. I mean, I'm guessing Netflix probably just paid the most, but but I mean, this is this is it is incredible across the board. Uh, it is so, 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 so very funny. Uh, it has lots and lots of little ideas that just kind of rattle around in it, just enough to sort of keep you engaged while it's just constantly shifting and pivoting and moving on to, you know, new aspects of the story and of the characters. Uh, it is, to your point, animated in a really, really fascinating way. Um, it is it is just, I mean, the the, the voice cast... Voice is, ca- is, Abby Jacobson plays Katie Mitchell, the kind of uh, lead character. It's so she's so good. You'd lose yourself mm-hmm. completely in these voices. I mean, Olivia Coleman. <laughs> oh my God, Fred Armisen and Beck Bennett. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, there's it's just it's just fantastic. It's just fantastic. Um, and there's also the queer factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in quite quite a significant uh, uh, sort of landmark moment. Abby Jacobson's lead character in this film is queer and she is, uh, has a crush on a girl who she's going to be uh, uh, getting to know better when she gets to film school because she has gotten been accepted into a film school, which they, they outline her love of film in really charming ways. 
Um, and she's making all these little movies herself, and she feels just really alone in the world, like no one understands her, no one understands her love of movies. And then she finally realizes that she's about to meet her tribe, um, and she's about to go in and find these people who are just like her at the film school. And she gets, uh, she gets a, a big crush on one of the girls and is like, you know, FaceTiming her and can't wait to go meet her. And then, you know, which kind of, and then kind of, you know, of course gets, gets put on hold uh, for the robot apocalypse, but mm-hmm. then, <laughs> then resumes at the end. And it does become explicit uh, mm-hmm. because we hear the, the mom say like, you know, like, you know, are you, are you going to bring this girl home to meet us? And, you know, it is like it is just so and, and again, just makes me so angry that it didn't get to play in theaters, mm. um, you know, and, and in some ways, I'm sure the Netflix factor does make it more intimate and more easy for like young queer kids to just be able to watch on their own mm. and just like have their own private connection with it, as opposed to maybe feeling it uncomfortable watching it with their parents in the theater or whatever. Um, but all the same, uh, it is it is it is a landmark moment in representation. And I, I and they handled it so well and without any sort of like it was not a big deal it Mm -hmm. was not a big deal um you know it was not anything she didn't have to come out um it was just understood and that is fantastic fantastic my only issues with this movie are that a i feel like it runs a good 15 20 minutes too long Mm. um it's nearly two full hours that is not needed um you know it does start to drag a little in the second half um, so I think they could have whittled this down to a good 95 minutes and it just would have been airtight. Um, and my other issue is that it tries to make us feel sympathy for a shitty dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I felt nothing but contempt for the father, uh, voiced by uh, Danny McBride, uh, from from the first second. So <laughs> at no point in the movie tricked me into actually feeling sympathy for him. I felt nothing but contempt. And I was just like, you're awful. Let her go. Um, and, uh, especially as, uh, when things start to unfold the way they do. And it's like, she could have been there with her. Um, but, uh, but yes, but back to you, your thoughts. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I, 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 I do think the father comes to a realization about his actions. And, uh, even though you are introduced to his like motivations that he, you know, wants to protect his daughter, therefore he is just like, you know, cruelly disapproving, uh, to her. And, but I, I do feel like they go the extra mile. So it's not just about her learning where he's coming from, but it's also like, he learns very explicitly how she interprets what he's doing. And I think there is like, you know, a moment of recognition and change there. So I think he is Mm -hmm. terrible, but I think that he learns that he's terrible and then changes. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, that that definitely happens. It's not just about her coming around to him. It's definitely about him needing to come around to realize his shortcomings and the ways that he, um, you know, is sort of holding her back and holding her down by uh, sort of just trying to force her into this mold of, of who she was when she was a little girl, you know, and not giving her the latitude to be who she is today. So, yeah, that's very much in the story. Um, but there were just so many, like, boo-hoo for the dad moments um, that I just had no patience for. <laughs> yeah, um, I can see that. But, yeah, I mean, it has, you know, this is this is not, I think Lord and Miller um, produced this, if not made it themselves. And it definitely has that Lord Miller uh, vibe from, you know, Lego movie, Lego Batman movie, where it's just a get, just a mile a minute gags and jokes and references the entire time. Like you're just like you, you just feel like fizzy watching it. 
hilarious it is like the when they go to the mall and the big like furby revolution <laughs> happens um yeah olivia coleman's character eric andre plays the like tech bro <laughs> asshole who like you know created all this chaos this is a movie where you absolutely forget you have a phone uh, i think of of all of these movies this one i mean yeah there's just like why would i pick up my phone if, if that means to stop looking at this movie, like you can't miss a moment of it. You know, it's not like a, I'm going to go get a water. Um, no, you can leave it playing. I can hear it from the, from the kitchen. Right. It's like, no, pause it. I have to blink. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. And, and also that I, I just know by now without fail that anytime that I do try to like leave the room to go get a drink and I don't pause whatever we're watching, I'll just hear Scott angrily walk and stand up and go pick up the remote and pause it. And I'm like, did I miss something? He's like, yeah, fucking stop doing that. Um, so, but yes, uh, this one Ouch. in particular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very intense. He, yeah, he gets very, he gets very angry whenever I like put something on and then I leave the room to get a drink. He's like, well, don't put it on yet. I'm like, well, I don't like silence. Uh, but yes, uh, <laughs> to your to your point, uh, yeah, you don't want to miss a second of this movie. And at no point are you just like zoning out like it, it holds your interest the entire time. I mean, to, I mean, obviously, it's it's very much made for the ADHD generation in that regard, um, because it is just so, so, so fast paced, so quick cut. So many jokes, so many gags, so many references, so many ideas, so many plot points. Um, but it works. It absolutely works. This movie is a binge plus. Yes, binge plus, year-end consideration. Uh, can't imagine a funnier animated film coming out. Uh, and you know, it's not Pixar, so it gets it gets that going for it too. And it is it is just it is just wonderful. So absolutely binge it. It's so gorgeous. I'm just thinking of how um, when they when they get to the spaceship, and he's like, "This looks like a Journey album cover." <laughs> it's so cool looking. It's so beautiful. Yes. I, I wish yeah. I could have seen this in theaters. I wonder if they'll do a thing. Do you think they're, they'll do a thing where they're like kind of put movies that have been, I guess they can't write this a Netflix movie. So this one just will. Well, well, I mean, Maybe. Netflix can still put in theaters. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 you know, they do limited theatrical runs for award season. So I'm sure they'll put this in theaters mm. probably for, probably for an awards push because I'm sure they are aware that they have a major best anime feature contender on their hands with this. Hmm. Um, I, I'd be, definitely be interested in checking that out. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's on Netflix for now, and it's rated PG. Our next movie is Together Together. A young loner becomes a surrogate mother for a single, middle-aged man who wants a child. Their unexpected relationship soon challenges their perceptions of connection, boundaries, and the particulars of love. <laughs> you go. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, this uh, is a film that I believe premiered at Sundance this year, uh, online Sundance, and uh, you know was one of those uh, one of the festival's most talked about buzzy movies. And it very much feels like that when you watch it. You're like, "Yep, that's a Sundance movie." Uh, you know, we have a very small scale, intimate, quirky character study about sort of an unlikely. Um, relationship, unlikely friendship, starting up between two people from different walks of life. We have Ed Helms uh, playing a single middle-aged man who has reached a point where he wants to become a father. I saw something talking about how this movie is interesting, and if only in that it introduces the idea of sort of like a male biological clock, since we, of course, have always had to hear about the female clock and having it be this very feminized idea, though men don't have, you know, and now we have Ed Helms playing a character who very much has that. He's like, I've reached a point in my life. I want to become a father. 
and I'm not in a relationship. And so I would like to do this with a surrogate. Um, and then we have Patty Harrison uh, playing a, a young woman, a barista, uh, who uh, manages to uh, sort of intrigue him when she comes in to be interviewed. And um, and they decide to move forward. And uh, so the movie essentially follows them throughout this nine months um, as they meet. And then she uh, becomes pregnant with his child. And then, you know, we just kind of watch them navigate that period of time uh, up until uh, up until birth. So uh, it is a film uh, written and directed by Nicole Beckwith. It has um, some fun supporting players popping up here and there. We have Julio Torres. We have Tig Notaro. We have Sufi Bradshaw. Um, so, you know, it's 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 very much a Sundance movie. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't feel, you know, that my proverbial hair was not blown back by it. Um, but, but, you know, I thought it had some nice moments here and there. Um, and I think that it is mainly to me notable, uh, for the quietly groundbreaking casting of Patty Mm -hmm. Harrison, a trans actress in a cis role that is not only a cis role, but a role that's focused entirely on pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, going into it, I didn't know much about the movie. I've been a fan of Patty Harrison for a number of years. She is uh, just a psychotic <laughs> genius. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of some of her stand-up right now, which is... Oh, my God. I mean, her Instagram oh. is 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 the most destabilizing Instagram <laughs> I experience on a daily basis. Um, so watching it, you know, I did not realize that her character was not trans. And so I thought I was watching a whole different movie. Um, I thought it was leading up to some sort of reveal. Um, and that, that it would happen like halfway through the movie. And then they would have this whole different relationship and it would be about her character and about like, you know, that, would, you know, I just thought it was going a different direction. So when I, it wasn't until like the second half of the movie where I started to accept, I'm like, oh, okay. So she actually is just playing a cis character. Um, huh. Okay. And I almost wish, I think I might possibly want to watch it again, knowing that, because I think that it really altered my experience, in the movie watching it for like nearly mm. the entire running time, thinking it was leading to a reveal that never came. Um, so, uh, and then of course, when I realized that I really did, I felt so just like, well, the, what, what a moment in casting, what a moment this is. I mean, this is, this is groundbreaking. This is groundbreaking. It's historic. Um, but it's all done with such a, a, a subtle hand. Um, and her, her performance in this movie, you, you would never identify her as the truly demented comic wit that she is, um, <laughs> from this movie, because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't lean into that. Like it's a very naturalistic performance that ends in the in the, in the final moments with such an unbelievable feeling and emotion. Um, it's 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 beautiful. It's really just a beautiful performance from her and from Ed Helms, who's I mean, he mm-hmm. plays essentially the same character in almost everything he's in, but he does mm-hmm. it very well. Um, and you know, in this one in particular, you know, it, it's really a full Ed Helms cuddle you get watching this movie. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's one of the more, especially watching Rutherford Falls around the same time, uh, uh, it's a more restrained Ed Helms than you'll find in, like, you know, The Office or or Rutherford Falls. Right, but right. Essentially yeah. the same sort of lovable, if not Affable. gratingly cloying. Right, nice uh, guy. Nice guy. Um, I, I, I was not expecting this character to be trans. Um, and... And so to me, the tension of the whole movie was, I think, what was kind of intended is the like, you know, will they or won't they? What mm. is what are the boundaries of their relationship? Um, and I think you should rewatch it because I think 
expecting some kind of reveal yeah. maybe prevented you from from truly I don't know. This was this is something huge. And I and it sucks because I feel like there's a there's a there's a part of me that says I you don't I don't want to even talk about her being trans, right? Like let's mm-hmm. just talk about this as a movie. But right. it's I think if you have um feelings about queer representation, trans representation, if this is something that is important to you or meaningful to you, you can't not recognize that this mm-hmm. is incredible. It is an yeah. incredible performance. It is it is a genius casting. It is so important, especially in the in the you talk about the end of the film. It is it's just it's it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I don't know. Mm. She's phenomenal. Yeah. When you really just you know kind of see it for the movie that it is, I think without that yeah that expectation, it's so so neat. You're just you're finding someone who is like you know put up these walls around um, who they allow into their lives because, because they're 26 and they're cool and they have cool friends who, you know, mm-hmm. Julio Torres uh, yeah. plays a character that seem you know, it also is very much, he's more similar to his online persona <laughs> of, of a, <laughs> of a total, um, too cool. Fashion weirdo twink. <laughs> fashion twink. Mm-hmm. Um, and who has, you know, uh, Patty Harrison's character has issues with her family and uh, perceptions of self from her past and, you know, not finishing college. And, you know, sees Ed Helms' character as kind of this, you know, he's sort of like a weirdo nerd. Ed, he's Ed Helms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, wh- where will they allow? And he's also kind of being a, a bit, you know, over the top because he's being really protective and he's trying to be a really good dad and he wants to know everything about what's going on with her as it relates to the baby. Um, and just watching them navigate that really, really complicated relationship as two very different people um, with this, you know, incredibly visceral bond um, was just fascinating. The story is so unique and uh, so sweet and I, I don't know. This was huge. Wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely making me want to watch it again. Um, you know, and and even you know, I realized what movie it was. You know, I, I, you know, I watched it with Scott, and he, I don't think had the same thought I did in terms of what it was going to be. And we were both just kind of like, yeah, it's nice. You know, it didn't, you know, it wasn't overwhelming, but it was nice, nice little movie. Um, but you know, but yeah, I, 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 I am interested in, in in watching it a second time to more fully appreciate. Um, her performance, if nothing else. Um, so, you know, it, it was, yeah, just a really nice, tender character study. Um, and uh, with, you know, with some quietly groundbreaking casting. So uh, sounds like you're you're heading toward a binge for this one. Binge plus. Binge plus. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I would say for me, it's probably a consume plus. Um, wow. But, uh, but uh, because, yeah, I mean, to me, it was just like, just a little Sundance movie, you know, it, it, it didn't, it, it didn't show me anything. I, I feel like I hadn't seen before, um, you know, aside from the casting, uh, which is, I think, you know, why I kind of zeroed in on that aspect of it and then ultimately in a misleading way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, so it was, you know, it was, to me, it was a, a nice, yeah, a nice little Sundance movie, but nothing, nothing groundbreaking aside from the casting. Um, uh, but I, but with the caveat that I would like to watch it again and experience it on its own terms. Yeah. I hope that, I hope that, 
I hope that you can. I'd love to hear what you think about it then. Yeah, for sure. No, it's like a moment that you dream of. You know, I, I hope you get. I hope you get to experience it again. Thank you. Um, it is available to rent and it is rated R. Our last movie of the week. <laughs> this one, <laughs> French Exit. This movie all has um, female protagonists, huh? I mean, it's all these movies this week. It's the best case scenario. <laughs> Dream week. Uh, French exit. A widowed New York socialite and her aimless son move to Paris after she spends last of her husband's inheritance. Michelle Pfeiffer plays the widowed New York socialite. Lucas Hedges plays her aimless son. And you say Tracy Lutz plays the voice of her. <laughs> of the cat, yes. Cat. Named yes. Little Frank. Yes, this is the movie where a cat has take, a voice. I try to take a picture. Very Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I try, <laughs> try to take a picture of you. Um, cat gets a lot of, you know, big screen time. Um, and Teacup was into it. <laughs> really? The, scene where, the first kind of big cat scene where uh, little Frank, like, jumps up on the on the office desk and watches, I don't know, like some financial show. Um <laughs> Teacup was staring at the TV. Wow. It was great. Riveted. Yeah. Riveted. Riveted. And then, I mean, also because matters. of Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman. Yes. Know, icon. Yeah. Icon. Absolutely. Of the cat community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, representation matters. And yeah. uh, and clearly this is doing a lot for, for cat visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just in, and as you said, Michelle Pfeiffer is the ultimate cat ally. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, so, yes, uh, worth pointing out, uh, of course, that this is, and I think I mentioned this at the time, mm-hmm. uh, the, the second movie within a few months where Lucas Hedges uh, accompanies sort of one of the, the, the great actresses of yesteryear on a transatlantic journey. Uh, first, uh, Meryl Streep and Let Them All Talk, and now Michelle Pfeiffer in this. Uh, you know, and by yesteryear, I just mean existing, you know, the, the great stars of, uh, of, of, of the last 40 years. Uh, and this is similar, somewhat similar to Angelina Jolie. This is just a great leading role for Michelle Pfeiffer, the likes of which we have not seen her get for some time. This is this is this is Michelle Pfeiffer just getting to sink her teeth into a very uh, just just a, a character that feels tailor made to 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 her strengths in in many ways. What did you think? Um, you didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I had a hard time knowing how I felt about this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess I could, I guess I agree. Well, putting the movie falls... aside and just talking about her. Yeah, it's hard though. Cause she, cause I feel like I have the same issues with her as the movie where it's uh. like, this is, this is the right handed sketch. And like woman in the window is the left handed sketch version. <laughs> Oh, so this is what you were referring to earlier when you're like, I don't like these movies that are not, you know, in between fact and fantasy. <laughs> um, you know, some magical realism is what you're taking issue with. And this one's, in this no, movie, no, this one's this one's fine. This one is fine because everything that you're led to believe makes sense. It's it's not magical realism. Like I'm okay with the fantasy aspect of it. It's just like if you're gonna put things in there that are realistic, then it, then like have them make sense. And here everything relatively makes sense like there is a certain amount of money and then it gets used and you know right. you get on a boat and it lands where it's supposed to and you pick up a phone and you expect the same result if you pick up a different phone and call the same number you know right 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 yeah um 
Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a strange. You know, the movie itself is is for sure a mixed bag. Um, yeah, this was just it, tough because I'm I I don't I felt like it was trying to be a little smarter than it was. Like it felt like it was trying to be a Wes Anderson movie, but it wasn't. Um, in that everything was like a little too um, precious Arch. or yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, which, um, I think like I agree not, with you. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, I could see. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could feel Wes Anderson being able to, you know, make this in a way that kind of reconciled those disparate elements, right? Because on the one hand, it wants to be very deadpan, and on the other hand, it wants to be very absurd and farcical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Wes Anderson is is a consummate master at being able to commingle those elements and ultimately have it feel right and correct for the story he's telling. Whereas in this, um, Azazel Jacobs, the director, does not find a way to balance those elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of shifts dramatically from scene to scene how farcical it feels ver- versus how naturalistic it feels. Um, and, you know, and we're, we're dealing with somewhat, you know, the gravitas of... Um, of a character who has stated that they are planning on dying. Um, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer's character in this film uh, is, is does, does not wish to, to go on living. And, you know, her plan is to basically spend the last of the money that she has uh, from, uh, you know, from her previous marriage and, uh, and then call it a day. So, you know, so we have that kind of hanging over the movie and very much informing her performance, but it, it just is one more element that the movie doesn't quite know how to reconcile with the rest of the story that's telling with all the different moods and shifts in, in energy that it has. So, and it's, 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 you know, Lucas Hedges also kind of does nothing in this, just like he did, mm. <laughs> did nothing and let them all talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that one, it made more sense. I felt like he was kind of being gracious and just kind of like the movie was not about him, but you know, he has a more substantive role in this. So in this one, he, I found it a bit more grating to watch him just be mm. do like a sort of like flat affect kind of privileged dipshit kid routine. Um, there is at least one stand-up performing, uh, supporting performance from Valerie <laughs> Mahaffey as a, as a quite a, quite a character in Paris uh, who is a, uh, insists that she's a fringe figure from Michelle Pfeiffer's past and who is now aggressively pursuing her as a friend. Um, Valerie Mahaffey did get nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for that performance. Mm. Um, so glad to see her get some recognition. It was a very cringy performance, but in a very, uh, very uh, masterful way. Um, but yeah, no, it's a strange movie. This movie had a ton when it was on its sort of first being rolled out, a ton of Oscar buzz for Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, you she know, was nominated, was, right? No, she was not. Uh, so it was ultimately empty buzz, um, mm. and it was buzz possibly buzz possibly started by Sony Pictures Classics, a distributor. Um, but yeah, it just it, it, it didn't quite land, you know. Um, and you know, I think that she, of course, is one of the great movie stars of all time, and uh, and it's always great to see her doing anything, and it's always you know somewhat insulting for those of us going back to you know the Batman Returns days. To see her cast in like blinking, you miss her roles mm. as moms and grandmas in movies like Ant Man. Oh, she was was she in the second uh, uh, Maleficent movie? I think yeah, she was. Um, so you know, it's 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 just it's it's great to see her get to play an actual a character, you know, not playing just like some supporting role in like some big franchise movie or a superhero movie. 
but to see her having a flesh and blood character to really lean into. Um, so, you know, so I, I can't not be happy when Michelle Pfeiffer is on screen. Um, and so that was the thing that carried me through this movie. But beyond that, I, I wouldn't say that there was much about it that I would commend it um, uh, for. Although, aside from the, you know, the magical cat, um, <laughs> which which even that was that also in in. Well, now I'm getting them confused. I'm like, was there something like that? And let them all talk to. No, no, no. Because in this one, they meet Daniel Henderson on the boat crossing the Atlantic. And she's the one who's like, oh, your ex-husband's in the cat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which is. um um, Danielle McDonald from Patty Cakes. Oh, right. Yes, I said Henderson, but yeah, McDonald, McDonald. Yes, yes. from Patty Cakes and and uh, and Bird Box. <laughs> mm-hmm. She plays this that. medium. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the thing. Like the movie just piles on. It wants to be this very like high society uh, mm. kind of uh, uh, satire. Um, you know, almost like something like a Noel Coward's comedy of just like all these kind of eccentric characters that are orbiting uh, this, this kind of, um, you know, socialite. Yeah. It had this like Woody Allen, Broadway, mm, Danny Rose type feel also like the Royal Tenenbaums of like, yeah, that's exactly. It's like these kind of bizarre cast that kind of have this like familial bond by the end, um, you know, right. As all the characters all pile up in the same, in the same Parisian flat. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it just it just doesn't work. It just doesn't exactly. work. Exactly. And uh, and I think that's ultimately, you know, why she didn't get nominated uh, is because the movie was just not strong enough, you know, and uh, and she also at times tonally kind of almost clashes with the movie like she is. I could see why you were having a hard time separating her from it because her energy is so dominant in it. She you know, she is the the sole focus of the vast majority of the film. And 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 yet somehow, even with that, it still somehow doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still she feels somehow weirdly out of place tonally and energetically with movie around her. So it's just 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 a misfire, sadly. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, I think for me, it's a consume, maybe consume minus. I think it's the same. Yeah. Consume, consume yeah. minus for me as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, big Big cat scenes in this one, though. <laughs> yes. So at least there's that. <laughs> Excellent cat acting. Yeah. Um, this one's also available to rent um, and is rated R. And that's it. That's we did all it. of them. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Binge. Um, be sure to subscribe if you have not already. Uh, Jason is on Twitter at Excess Baggage. I am Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.